you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5 again. Luke chapter 5. Back in Luke chapter 2, just after the birth of Jesus, we met uh, two godly Israelites at the temple as Jesus was brought in by Joseph and Mary. One of them, of course, was Simeon. But then you might remember Anna. The Scripture says of Anna that in chapter 2, verse 37, that as a widow, she was continuing as a widow until she, her, until she was 84. And then Luke's, Luke continues, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day. Worshiping with fasting and prayer. Anna was hoping for the Christ. She was longing for the Christ. Jesus was what alone could satisfy Anna. But before Jesus came, she was filled with fasting and prayer, a hungering after Christ. And then, Mary and Joseph come in with the baby. And Anna knows that this is the one that she's been longing for. How does she respond? Does she continue to cry out to God for the Christ to come in mourning and sadness? Not at all. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God, Luke says, and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus changed Anna When he came, all of a sudden this need for fasting melted away. One wonders what we know that she didn't live to see Jesus in adulthood during his earthly ministry 30 years later. But one wonders what kind of attitude she would have had to know that Jesus, the one she had longed for and prayed for and hoped for all of these years, was finally there in her midst teaching, healing, forgiving sins. The Christ was there. We're in Luke chapter 5. Just read of the story of Levi, Jesus calling Levi, and how Jesus has come for sinners as the great physician. We'll continue now and finish the chapter this morning, beginning in verse 33. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Please pray with me. Father, I ask that we would sit attentively at the feet of Jesus as he answers these questions and teaches his disciples, the people, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees and us how 
great he is and why he would not allow his disciples to fast. I pray that as we meditate and contemplate our Savior this morning, that we would rejoice in him. That we would recognize his glory and that this glory of Christ and the grace of Christ would bring us joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And I ask that you would do this through the Holy Spirit who is present right now in this place and through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage here begins with a question. It says, and they said to him, in other gospels, in other synoptic gospels, we know that this question is posed to Jesus by the disciples of John the Baptist. It could have been that the people were there as well, and and they were also asking the question alongside them. Perhaps many different parties were asking this all at once, or it could have been on different occasions, but it's likely that this was asked by the disciples of John the Baptist, asking Jesus for clarity. The connection here for Luke, I think, is pretty evident. For, after all, Jesus, we just read, was eating and drinking with sinners. And so Luke attaches this story of Jesus' teaching right to the right to the back end of that account. In other words, it was not only a problem that Jesus, MacArthur notes this, It's not only a problem that Jesus was eating and drinking with sinners, it's actually a problem that he's eating and drinking, period. The question has to do with fasting, eating and drinking in general. The disciples, these people, I should say, the disciples of John the Baptist, they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? That's the question. After all, if we compare your disciples to these other groups, the us, the disciples of John the Baptist, and the disciples of the Pharisees, they, we and they are fasting. Your disciples don't fast. Why? Now, we, I think we have to understand a little bit of what's going on with fasting at this time in Jewish history. The law, the Old Testament law, prescribed only one fast for the people of Israel. It was to be done once a year for the Day of Atonement festival. Now we know that fasting was common for Old Testament saints besides this. The leaders of Israel, we know from different periods, different accounts throughout the Old Testament history of the Jews, the leaders of Israel would prescribe solemn fasts, national days of fasting, fasting for the people of Israel. But after captivity, the fast began to grow. It wasn't just one fast, an occasional national fast, but the fast began to grow. Jews would fast four other times during the year, to remember the fall of Jerusalem, different bad episodes in the fall of Jerusalem. So they have the Day of Atonement, and then after the captivity, to remember the fall of Jerusalem, they would, at four other times of the year, also fast. Then they added a fast for Esther, and then they added 22 other fast days. And then we, by the time Jesus is on the scene, there are numerous other fastings going on. The Pharisees fast at this point in history two days a week. And this is part of their religious practice. So you have to imagine there are people going around in the name of God saying you have to fast two days a week. This is what godliness looks like. Most often, these fasts fasts lasted just one day, morning and evening. 
And after, <clears throat> excuse me, after that, then there would be other levels of severity with the fast. Some fasts were three-day fasts. There would be week-long fasts during which people would keep, would keep from eating during the day alone and then just eat at night, so it's hard to fast for a week. And then people would, the Jews in particular, had a temptation to look at fasting as virtuous and even meritorious before God, as a way of making God look at them with favor. And so there's all this fasting going on. The, the Pharisees are fasting two days a week, and here's Jesus' disciples, and they aren't fasting at all. And you can understand then why it raised eyebrows they would have stuck out like a sore thumb among the Jewish people. Again, the Pharisees were fasting two days a week. But this passage is really not about fasting. This passage is about how the glory of Christ changes life and gives even greater certainty concerning the things we have been taught as Luke wrote to Theophilus back in verse 4 of chapter 1. And so this passage is really about Christ and how he changes religious practices and will change religious practices. So I want you to consider three points in this passage this morning. First, the joy of the bridegroom's presence. First, the joy of the bridegroom's presence. Jesus says when they ask him, Yours, your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, verse 34, can you make the wedding fest, wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom of the wedding feast. How can you feast when the bridegroom's present? You don't fast at a wedding reception. Not if you've got any brains, you go and you celebrate, you rejoice. The people who are throwing the wedding reception do not want to see you fasting. (laughs) They want to see you rejoicing at the bride and the groom. If you're fasting, you're like, what's there to mourn here? (laughs) This is a wedding. This is a time to celebrate. The Jewish wedding feast would last seven days long. And in fact, there was a rabbinical saying around this time. A rabbinical saying that at least has been preserved for us, I should say, that, quote, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. That's what the Jews had to say about wedding feasts. In other words, you never fast. You don't have to fast anymore if you get, if you're going to a wedding feast. I would then look for as, if I were a Pharisee, I'd look for as many opportunities as I could to go to wedding feasts myself. But the, but this is, this makes sense. Weddings are occasions for joy. And Jesus is saying, who in their right mind would abstain from food and merriment when the bridegroom is there with them at a wedding feast. And I'm the bridegroom. Which is a very interesting thing for Jesus to say. Can the wedding, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now this may just be an illustration. It could just be a totally innocent illustration. But this bridegroom image is one that is very familiar in the Scriptures. We find it in the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea that God is the bridegroom of His people Israel. In Isaiah 62.5, which was in our responsive reading this morning. Isaiah says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, 
so shall your God rejoice over you. The bridegroom in Isaiah is God. The bridegroom in Isaiah is God. So in Hosea chapter 2 verse 19, where the Lord says to his people, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you into me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. God is the bridegroom betrothing his fiance, his wife-to-be, again in Hosea. In other words, this is, the bridegroom language is at least suggestive from the Old Testament. And it's not suggestive of the Christ. This is not a messianic statement. This is a divine statement. In the Old Testament, God is the husband of his people. And we know that Jesus Christ fulfills this picture. A husband's love for his wife pictures the love that Christ has for the church. As Paul says of the marriage union, this mystery is profound. And I am saying it, the marriage union, refers to Christ and his church. And here, in this very early teaching of Jesus, he is already saying to to his people and to all who will hear him, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom who brings joy. Jesus is the groom and the husband of Israel and of his church. At the same time, in this passage, in Luke 5, that's not entirely the picture Jesus uses. He speaks not of a bride and a bridegroom, but of a bridegroom and wedding guests. It's not a bride who is happy with the bridegroom, but the sons of the bridegroom or the wedding guests. And so I think we should exercise some caution about drawing rigid, maximal connections in the bridegroom imagery in Luke 5. But I do believe that it's very likely that Jesus wants us to hear him very closely here and to draw some conclusions from the bridegroom analogy, namely this conclusion that Jesus is God incarnate, the one who is the divine bridegroom of his people. And the bridegroom is present. And that's the most important lesson here. As much as I want us to see that connection between God being the husband of his people and how Jesus says, that's me here. He appears to be saying that's me here. As important as that is, there's a much more important lesson here in this passage that we dare not miss. And that is this. Jesus brings unadulterated gladness and satisfaction. That's what he's trying to teach us. Jesus brings unadulterated gladness and satisfaction. What is fasting about? Fasting is for sorrow. Fasting is for sorrow. And Jesus banishes that. Jesus brings joy. In fact, there's Jesus, the way he states the question, which is a rhetorical question, makes it sound like it's impossible to make the son, the wedding guest, fast when the bridegroom's there. This is Utterly natural. I couldn't even make them fast if I would. Because I'm here. I'm the one they seek. I'm the one they want. I'm the one who brings gladness. Fasting often brings, fasting is often for sorrow, but Jesus brings joy. Fasting was often practiced because of desperate need. 
And Jesus brings complete satisfaction. All the needs are met. There's no need to fast when everything you want is right there. The one you want, the one you've hoped for, the one you've desired, the one you've prayed for, He's there. What other need is there then to fast? Because if fasting is for sorrow, Jesus brings joy. If fasting is for desperate need, you've got no needs. When Jesus is with you, And I think Jesus is even pushing us to see that fasting is really about the heart. You see what the Pharisees wanted to do with fasting in their two-day-a-week fastings was say, this is what you have to do. These externals are what matter before God. And Jesus is saying, no, what's most important is the heart. And if the heart is most important, and I am with you, I change your religious practices. Fasting is a matter of the heart. John the Baptist got at the joy that Jesus brings himself. In the Gospel of John, we read in chapter 3, verse 29, when John the Baptist said these words, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You see, John is echoing the very same teaching here, although he's not talking about fasting. He's talking about how Jesus brings completed joy, joy that fills the cup all the way up to the top so that there's no more room for need, no more room for sorrow. He fills it all the way up, and he's the bridegroom. John the Baptist calls him in that verse, in John 3, the bridegroom three times again. Christ is the bridegroom. He fulfills all longing. He is the desired one who alone satisfies. He, If our life is a feast, He is the reason for the feast. He is the bridegroom. And as the bridegroom, He loves His people. He belongs to us and, and we belong to Him. There's love in these words when Jesus says to us, I'm the bridegroom. I love my people. What Jesus is saying is that he's saying to us, I change everything. I bring joy that overshadows all earthly trials and sorrows. I'm the bridegroom. Knowing Christ brings inner peace and stability that transforms everything. Jesus, the name to sinners dear, as the hymn writer said, the name to sinners given, it scatters all their guilty fear. It turns their hell to heaven. And when heaven is present with you, why do you, would you fast? We need to look at Christ. We need to see Him. Jesus is pushing us, beloved, to look at Him with the eyes of faith, to look at Him more than this world. We need to see our Bridegroom. We need to know Him and believe that He is present with us. For He is. He has promised this. As I said earlier, the law mandated only one nationwide fast for the people of Israel. It was on the Day of Atonement. A day where every year there was a remembrance of sin. And each year the people of Israel marked the Day of Atonement with a fast. They would humiliate themselves, the text says. And that was their way of fa- that's a way of saying they fasted. Because every year there was this remembrance of sin in the Day of Atonement. And there was a picture in the sacrifices and in the scapegoat of, of the uh, atonement that Christ would bring. And yet they would do this every year. I think it's, it's very striking to me at least that right after all these passages in Luke 5, dealing with the forgiveness of sins that Jesus brings, 
Luke Ness, Jesus' explanation of why his disciples don't fast. The bridegroom is here. The one who forgives sins. And he will bring an end to sins once for all by his blood atonement. So that, in that sense, you don't even need to do the one required fast any longer. We've seen first the joy of the bridegroom's presence. Now I secondly want you to consider the sorrow of the bridegroom's absence. Verse 35, the sorrow of the bridegroom's absence. Jesus continues, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus continues. I want you to notice right away, what is Jesus talking about here? What is he referring to? Remember, <laughs> when, when the disciples heard these words, brothers and sisters, they, they don't know all that's going to happen. Has Jesus made any prophecies about his death yet and resurrection? Anything? No. The closest we have so far in the Gospel of Luke is the prophecy of Simeon to Mary. That's as close as we get. Jesus here, for the first time, is speaking to his disciples about his death on the cross. He says, the bridegroom will be taken away. I wonder what the disciples heard when they, or thought when they heard that. The connotations of that word, of the words, will be taken away, be taken away. The connotation behind the original there is a violent taking away. Isaiah 53.8 may even be in view here, though it would be a very quick and subtle allusion. But you may remember Isaiah 53.8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. He will be taken away. Jesus told his disciples much later on in John chapter 16, much later on during his earthly ministry, he said to his disciples in verse 20 of John 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. You see, Jesus is referring here to his death. He is telling the disciples there is coming a time where the bridegroom will be taken away, where I will, un- I will suffer violence in fulfillment of Scripture. Yes, I'm the bridegroom who removes all need of fasting now, but there will come a time where you will have a great sorrow and you will fast naturally because I've been taken away. He's talking about his death. I don't think he's even talking about his death, resurrection, and then ascension, and then being away then. I don't think he's talking about all of that specifically. I think he has in view specifically his death here, to be very clear. Some people argue from this passage that when Jesus leaves during his, after his ascension, that the church has an obligation from these verses, that the church has an obligation to observe certain fasts from food and drink. But that specific command is absent no matter what Jesus is talking about. The greater point is Christ's prediction concerning a time of sorrow when he is taken away by death. In fact, Jesus says that at that time, they will fast. Even if he is here referring to 
his absence between his ascension and his second advent, if that's the absence, if that's the being taken away he's talking about, he still doesn't require his church to keep certain fasts, let alone twice weekly fasts like the Pharisees did. He is making them here voluntary and a matter of soul liberty. He does not require in this passage his church to keep certain fasts like the Jews did. And yet we also know, according to the book of Acts, that the early church did indeed fast. Paul also speaks of being hungry. So we see fasting in Acts. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians in a couple different passages about being hungry. In this time between Christ's ascension and and, and the rapture of the church, Jesus is still present in His church by the Holy Spirit, And so that presence, I believe, changes fasting from what it was like under the Old Covenant. It's highly significant that there is no place in Acts or any of the epistles where churches are commanded to observe fasts. This is even true in Colossians chapter 2, where Paul speaks of asceticism having no value to the mortification of the flesh. He doesn't then say, but you do fast or something like that. He actually says it doesn't actually mortify the flesh to fast. So we should be careful about requiring fast. Very careful about requiring fast. Especially in light of the scriptures we have that do not force or require it. We should only force what the scriptures force. The New Testament, New Testament believers do fast because we are still waiting for Christ to fulfill His promises and to bring His kingdom. And so there is something of a in-between time that is reflected in fast. We don't fast like the Jews did. We don't fast like the Old Covenant did. We certainly don't fast like on, on the Day of Atonement. So things are different now. They're different because Jesus is still present, and yet there is a sense in which we're hoping for Him to come in His fullness and to bring fulfillment of His promises. And that dynamic of Him being present while we're waiting for His kingdom means that fasting is present, but in a much different sense than it was for the Jews in the Old Testament and especially under Jewish legalism. So Christ has changed fast with His resurrection and His presence in the church. There's a sense in which there's still, a, there's still truth to the fact that the bridegroom is with us, I would say. New Testament fasting, therefore, is changed. It's not as rigid as Jewish fasting. When New Testament Christians fast, they do so with freedom from any Mosaic or Jewish legalism. We never fast for ascetic, meritorious, or penitent purposes. There are only five instances, in fact, of Christians fasting in Acts and the Epistles. The first example is Paul right after he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. We're not sure why he fasted there. The second and third examples come before the churches, before churches choose missionaries and then elders in Acts. So they're they're fasting for guidance. These are that, by the way, is the only those are the only clear passages where we know why Christians fast is in Acts, where they're fasting for guidance. And then Paul seems to be mentioning fast, as I said a moment ago, twice in Second Corinthians when he talks about going hungry, but it's hardly emphasized in his practice, and he never tells us to do it, or never tells a church to do it. The bottom line is that I'm trying to communicate to you is this. Jesus radically changed fast with his presence during his earthly ministry. He is most likely in verse 35 referring to the fasting and the extreme sorrow that will accompany his death. And now in the New Testament era, Jesus has changed fasting. Before bodily fasting, before fasting for the body's sake, Christ and his apostles repeatedly emphasized the soul Fasting from worldliness, the flesh, and temptations. And when Jesus was crucified, it brought about mourning 
a kind of mourning such that surely some of his disciples fasted. And then after his resurrection in the church, the spirit, frequency, and purposes of fast became voluntary and wholly altered. Things are different when Jesus is present. Things are different when the bridegroom is with us. That leads to a third point that I want you to see from this text this morning, the superiority of the bridegroom's ways. So we've looked at the joy of the bridegroom's presence, the sorrow of the bridegroom's absence, and now I want you to understand the superiority of the bridegroom's ways. I'll read these verses again to get them in your hearing, beginning in verse 36. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Now Jesus tells what are called parables, or a parable, three parables though, and they are directed again at the Pharisees. These parables are directed at the Pharisees. The first parable is pretty easy to understand. Jesus says, if you've got an old garment um, that has a tear or a rip, and you want to patch it, you don't go to your brand new garment and rip a piece off of a brand new garment and then put it on the new, on the old one. You've just ruined the new and you've ruined the old. You ruin the new because you ripped a piece off of it. You ruin the old because the new patch, the patch from the new doesn't match the patch, doesn't match the old garment. So let's uh, make this very very down to earth. Let's say I get, I just got a, a brand new white shirt in the mail. Okay. So I'm up here. You can see my white shirt very, so you can imagine pastor getting a new white shirt in the mail. This is an exciting day. I, um, to get a new white shirt. And so I, I, but at the same time, I've noticed that my, one of my old shirts has a stain right here on, on, on the, on the sleeve. And so I, I take the, the new shirt out of the package and I cut off the sleeve and I put it on the old, well, I take the old sleeve off and then I, I replace it with, with the new sleeve. That, I'm not an expert in sewing, but I don't think that would be a wise course of action. How about a wedding dress? Um, would you, if you had, um, if if you had an old wedding dress that was stained or maybe even torn, I don't I don't know how that would happen because wedding dresses aren't often worn that much. But let's just stick with the illustration again. If you had a new wedding dress, you wouldn't take that new wedding dress and say, "Hey, let's rip off a piece of this and put it on the old one." It doesn't match, and you've just ruined the new one. You ruin both of them when you try to make the new fix the old. Jesus' illustration, I believe, with the wineskins is basically the same point. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. So what they would have done back in ancient times is they would have got, had a leather wineskin. This would, a skin made of leather. And they would have poured the the new fresh wine into this new leather wineskin to hold the wine. And as happens with wine, it would expand and ferment, and it would stretch out the wineskin. And it would, it would expand it out really as far as it could go. So you would never then, once you're done with the old wineskin, and now you've got a new crop of grapes and you've got new wine from the from the new grape clusters, you would never take that new wine and pour it into the old wineskin. Because the moment you do, the old wineskin breaks. Because it's expand, it's going to expand some more, past what it can hold, 
And when you do that, you not only lose the old wineskin, you lose the wine. It's on the floor. You can't drink wine that's on the floor. Not even the best of us can get it up in five seconds. Because the wine is ruined. It's burst the wineskins. And both the old wineskins and the new wine is now ruined. Everything's ruined when you try to mix the new with the old. And Jesus is giving the people here very vivid, common day illustrations to make this point. You can't mix the new, me, with the old, the Pharisees. You can't mix Jesus and Jewish traditions. Philip Graham Ryken puts it this way, quote, the gospel will not mix and match with man-made religion, which is exactly what the Jewish pharisaical system was. It was man-made religion. And Jesus is saying, you can't mix me with that. All the Pharisees' legalism and attempts to establish their own merit before God cannot be mixed with Christ. John MacArthur puts it this way, Jesus, quote, did not come to improve the old system, but to renounce and undermine it, end quote. You can't have patchwork Jesus, a little bit of Jesus here on a big old system over there. You must admit before God that you are not righteous, that you indeed are a sinner, just like a tax collector like Levi. You must leave the old ways behind, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, and come to me, the bridegroom. You can't have a little bit of me and all your old ways. Leave it all behind. Leave all your self-righteousness behind. Leave all your external religion behind and come to me. Believe in me. Receive the forgiveness of sins that I offer. And then he adds a third parable. And it actually could be a little confusing because now all of a sudden he switches gears with the wine illustration. He says this in verse 39, but new, uh, excuse me, and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. Now this is a completely different parable with a completely different meaning. People who love the old ways too dearly, people who love the old ways too dearly have no appetite for the new ways. Jesus is offering new, fresh wine, sweet wine, sweet wine right off the grape clusters. And there are these Pharisees who are so addicted to their old intoxicating wines that they I don't think I'll have any new wine. That can't. The old is good. The old is good. Jesus is saying, the new really is better, but some people are so attached to the old, they will never even taste the new. They won't even give it a try. This is an important lesson for the Pharisees to hear. Jesus is saying, are you so attached to your old wine that you won't even taste the new sweet wine that I offer you? And he is teaching us all that people who have a fixed habit for the old, for old ways, will not find Jesus tasty. Now, this is not a lesson to say that we should just embrace whatever is new in Christianity or religion in general. That's not Jesus' point. He's saying, I'm new at this time. And and he, he overthrows the old. Indeed, I think what Jesus is saying here is true not only for men like the Pharisees who had all these externals with the religion and were like, I don't think I want to try Jesus. I really like all my fasting, all my extra Jewish legalism. I like to be right before God with all of these performances. He's not only talking to them, he's talking to all humanity. Because this is true. What Jesus is saying is true not only for those who have a taste or habit for an old religion like the Pharisees, but this is true even for those who have old ways of sin. There are ways in which our old wine, our old sinful habits keep us from going to Jesus. Ah, the old is better. I don't even have to try him. 
Jesus won't be as tasty as the old. And so the lesson here for us is not to let anything from our old man keep us from Christ. Don't let this world and its sinful pleasures and its offerings blind you to the glory of Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and drink the new wine of Christ and find one who will who is better and brings greater satisfaction and joy than anything this world offers. These verses all reinforce what Jesus taught about fasting. His coming and presence changes everything. It changes fasting. Jesus will change worship. The incarnate Christ, the Son of God, is so important that everything will take on a different hue by the time He's done. And so the real core message of this passage is the superiority of Christ in His ways. His coming is the fulfillment of all Israel's hopes. And in His coming, He brings this old law to an end and will revolutionize Jewish worship and Jewish ways and will bring an end to the Pharisees and their false religion. We learn here what amazing joy Jesus brings us. He brings us an unspeakable joy with His presence. And this presence is with us. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is with you? What difference does it make then? Even with Christ ascended in heaven, He brings us unspeakable, glory-filled joy. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That kind of joy sounds like the joy of having the bridegroom at your wedding feast. I wonder, is there some created thing, some earthly joy, that is like the presence of a bridegroom to you? Is there some pastime, some person, some pleasure that when you have it, fasting is unthinkable, when you've got that thing you want so badly? Are there things that bring you great pleasure? Or are there things that when absent bring you immense sadness and frustration? The important thing that this passage is teaching us is that we guard our hearts such that Jesus remains our true and ultimate bridegroom, this true and ultimate source of joy. And then I would take this further. Are you discouraged? Are there circumstances right now that frighten you? Are there matters causing sadness for you right now? Do you see what Jesus is telling you? Beloved, will you listen to His voice? Jesus is like the sun that shines so brightly you don't seem to notice the clouds anymore. He's the bridegroom. Sadness changes when Jesus is with you. He's the bridegroom. This is why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 4 that even in the face of death, we do not grieve as others who have no hope. It's because Jesus is the bridegroom. He is with us and He will raise us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as He looks to the fullness of Christ's presence that we will have, He says in verse 17 of that chapter, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom now, and He will be our bridegroom in the age to come. He's our source of joy if our eyes of faith will see Him. 
As Newton says in his wonderful hymn, he makes the name of Jesus, makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna. Manna that satisfies so you eat and don't fast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary west. He makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Jesus is the bridegroom. Let us pray. Lord, the message of these verses is so simple. And yet, our fleshly, stubborn minds can sometimes struggle to really believe what your word says. I pray that that would not be the case this morning, that you would remove the doubts and fears of your people and that they would believe that Jesus is the bridegroom and that he brings joy, joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And I pray that that kind of joy would sustain us ever and always, that you'd sustain this church with that joy. I pray, Lord, that you would sustain me with that joy, and that we, Father, would keep our eyes on Christ, the true and only source of joy, the one who banishes sorrow and brings all of our great needs to satisfaction. And we pray that our faith would so rest in your beloved Son that nothing can knock us from holding him with a confidence and assurance that he is all that he says he is. So press the truths of this passage upon the souls of these dear people, upon each one of us. And I pray for your grace to do this through the working of the Holy Spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen.